I feel pretty confident that there is at least one of them in every school, if not every classroom across the country. And you probably knew somebody like this. It was that one kid. Usually it was the same kid who had a tendency to remind the teacher when homework was due. But the student that would ask a question to the teacher, and you knew with almost absolute certainty that this student not only knew the answer to the question, but was asking this question so that that student can show the teacher and all the kids in the room exactly how smart they are. And so you might be here this morning, you might have even been that student, and it's okay, listen, there's room in the kingdom for all kinds of people. And it's entirely possible that there is a chance that I may have been on both sides of that fence at some point in time. Now, not the kid who would ever remind the teacher that homework was due. You can ask Laura Dills. There was never a moment in my life where I was happy about the teacher expecting homework to be turned in. But there may have been times when I wanted to show off a little by asking questions that I knew the answer to so I could answer the question so that everybody in the room might think that I was kind of sort of smart. And it seems like Jesus's ministry was just constantly surrounded by this kind of person. That Jesus dealt with this on a regular basis where these people would come up to Jesus and they would ask him questions and they would try to trick him into saying something or try to show off by the questions that they were asking. But you really have to admire the persistence of Jesus' opponents. Because no matter what town he went in, no matter how long his ministry went on, there were always these people, whether they were religious leaders or lawyers or scribes, that were coming to Jesus trying to outshine him, trying to get him to trip over his words, trying to invalidate his teaching. And so there was one time, and Luke tells the story in chapter 10, when a lawyer came to Jesus and he asked him a question. But there was something, this was a particularly smart lawyer. And it looked like he was nailing every beat. The lawyer set the thing up perfectly. He asked the exact right question. He anticipated Jesus' response, and he even had the right answer. He had the perfect launch. He was going through everything that he needed to do. And then in the words of my four-year-old gymnast daughter, he stuck the landing arms and crown. Ta-da! It was all perfect. Every single beat was exactly like it needed to be. He comes to Jesus And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him a simple question. He said, what is written in the law and how do you read it? And this lawyer answered, you should love God with your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. That is not the response that the lawyers and the religious leaders often got from Jesus. But now this guy finally did it. He finally nailed exactly what he knew Jesus was going to say, and he won. Jesus looked at him. He said, that's exactly right. Now go and do it. And we see Jesus teaching this, and we see Jesus reaffirming this now, that this is the law of the kingdom of God. This is the fullness of everything that Scripture teaches us to love God with everything that we have and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus said, listen, man, you got it. You know exactly what you're supposed to do. Now go out and do this and you'll live. 
And while, of course, that seems simple enough and that seems plain enough, we know that there's a lot that goes in to loving God with everything that we have and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so what does this mean? How does this work out practically in our lives? Well, thankfully, our lawyer friend was exceedingly arrogant and wanted to keep displaying his knowledge. He wanted to keep going a little bit further and trying to stump Jesus, which is going to turn out to be a somewhat regrettable decision for him. But he asked Jesus some clarification questions, and Jesus begins to teach in a parable. And in the parable that follows, Jesus teaches what this law looks like in practice. And he teaches us how kingdom people are called to live in community, and how we're called to be good neighbors through a very unlikely example. And so our passage of scripture today is Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25 and reading to verse 37. And this is the word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we just thank you that your word is both simple and plain, but also so very difficult and challenging at the same time. Yeah, maybe we're here today finding ourselves much like that lawyer, thinking that we have nailed everything. Maybe we think we know all the right things to say and we know what Scripture teaches us and we've got all the information inside of our heads, but God, we're not doing a super great job of living it out. God, remind us that living in your kingdom is both something that we believe and something that we do. And as we look through this parable of this good Samaritan, God, I just ask that you teach us all to be good neighbors. To learn how to live in intentional and compassionate community with those in our church and those in our lives and those in our community. 
God, in the places where we are, are living well, where we are being good neighbors, help us to go deeper into that. And God, in the places where we fall short, forgive us. And then also strengthen us and guide us so that we can go out and to do the work that we're called to do. So Father, teach us, lead us and guide us, and help us to be good neighbors everywhere we go. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Before we jump into the example of the good neighbor who reflects the, the kingdom community that Jesus instructs us to live in, let's look at the two negative examples that Jesus sets up for us. And so to set the story, we have this man who was traveling between two cities and he happens to find himself in a very difficult situation. He's attacked by robbers, he's stripped of everything that he's had, and he's left for dead. And then in verse 31, Jesus picks up with a passerby and he says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And in these two examples, we have people who should have been the most likely candidates to help someone in need. The Levite and the priest, these were the religious leaders. These were the examples of what it meant to follow after God. If you were going to, to have a poster on your wall of somebody who should emulate everything that the law of God teaches, these were your guys. But what we find is that these men represented religion and appearance only. These were men who knew the law. They knew what God taught. They knew what God required of them. But they were unwilling to put in the work. They were unwilling to take what they knew and put it into practice. They were unwilling to be good neighbors. People who claimed to know God, yet did nothing to reflect the character of God when they had the opportunity. And Christians and churches today, we're, we're not immune from falling into this trap. We're not immune to looking at the needs and the difficult circumstances that people find themselves and having opportunities to be good neighbors choose instead to walk the other way. And it doesn't always look as plain and clear as the Levite and the priest, but sometimes it does. And you can see churches that fall into several different categories when it comes to how we live in community and how we love our neighbors. On one side, you have the separatist churches. Maybe the worst examples of all these are at least the most noticeable example of churches living in bad community. These are the churches who might look at somebody in need or look at the people in their community and say, you know what, I don't know and I don't care. All we're concerned with are the people inside of our little building. We're a nice, tight-knit family. We want to interact with each other. We want to take care of each other. But everybody outside these walls, who cares what's going on? It's not our problem. Somebody else can deal with it. But even if they don't, it really doesn't matter at all. These would be the most apples to apples comparison of the Levite and the priest. But then maybe you could also have a church that looks more like an outsourcing church. And so this would be a church that recognizes, yeah, there's some really serious need in our community. And there are some people who not only need the gospel, but they need things taken care of. They need someone to be a good neighbor to them. And I feel really bad about it. I really hate that people are in difficult situations and I just am really praying that God is going to send somebody else to handle it. 
I know there's hurt, I know there's need, but maybe I'm just not the one qualified to do it. Maybe we're just not the church prepared to take part in it. But then maybe in the most subtle, but the most equally dangerous place, you can have the buzzword church. A church that loves talking about community, but can often forget to actually take part in it or to do it superficially. Churches that love talking about all the things that they want to be a part of and the community they want to develop and how they're a one another church and we love God and we love people. But all these things just turn out to be buzzwords because when you look beneath the surface, there's not any real or actual life-changing gospel-focused community going on. And I think for us, as Redeeming Grace Community Church, the most likely one of those to fall into would be that third one. I mean, goodness, community is in our name. It makes our name very long, actually. If you look at our church name, it's a very long church name. It's hard to find a website that goes with that. Thinking through our website address was very difficult. Making a logo, a lot of words in our name. But community is there. And we're a church that we do feel passionate about community. And we do like talking about community. And we do want to be a church that has that culture of community and good neighbors. But it can be very easy to fall into the trap of talking about it so much that we forget to do it. And that seems to be where this lawyer found himself as well. Because he asked Jesus the question, what does it take to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know it, man. You've got it. You just said it. Love God and love people. If you go and do that, then you'll live. But then listen to verse 29. It says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now he's looking for validation. Now he wants Jesus to get specific so he can say again, look at all these things I'm doing. Not only am I loving my neighbor, not only am I loving God, but I'm loving the people that you said because he was expecting Jesus to start naming the obvious choices. Your neighbor, the people in your life, the people in your community, the people that you love, your friends and your family. And this lawyer was ready to say, look at all the ways that I'm living this out. Too often people come to Jesus looking for something that they're already doing. Too often we don't come to Jesus to understand how to really live in community, but to validate the way that we do it. We come to Jesus with our report cards of the things that we're doing and the ways that we're living and the service projects that we're accomplishing. And we say, Jesus, look at all these things I'm doing. Isn't that amazing? And then we walk off. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that people who love their dream of community will destroy community. But the people who love those around them will create community. And if we love the concept of community more than we love our neighbors, we're never going to establish real, meaningful community. And the reality is that Christian community is more than just coffee chats and small groups. Even those those things are very good and very important. Real Christian kingdom-minded community is something that goes deeper. It's more personal, and it's often more difficult. And so what does it look like for us, both individually and as a church, to be a good neighbor? Well, Jesus gives us an example as he tells us the story of this good Samaritan. Alchemy was... A weird, mystical, magical forerunner to chemistry. 
And in alchemy, there was this idea that you could take certain base metals and turn them into something nicer, that you could transform different elements into something else. And the focus tended to be towards sometimes making a perfect person, maybe making ourselves immune to sickness or anything like that. But a lot of times what the alchemists were focusing in on is taking something that was worthless and transforming it into something of value. Say taking a metal like mercury or lead and turning it into gold. And of course, we can understand the allure of that, because if you can take something worthless and something plentiful and turn it into something of value, then that would make you worth a lot and make you very valuable. And of course, it never really worked. But if it had, there would have been, of course, a very unintended consequence. Because if you take something like mercury, something like lead that's plentiful and all over the place, and you turn it into something like gold that's very precious, you can take gold and make it actually rather worthless. Because one of the things that makes gold good currency, that makes gold valuable, is that gold is rare. In fact, I was reading that if we took all the gold that's ever been discovered, all the gold in every bit of jewelry and every, in every bank and every Fort Knox and all these places and all the things, even in the microchips, if we take every ounce of gold that's ever been accumulated and melted it down, it would be a cube. We can make a cube out of it that's about 70 I think 70 feet by 70 feet, something along those lines. Not a very big amount. Somebody once said that you could fit all the gold that's ever been accumulated into two Olympic-sized swimming pools. But then if you made it more plentiful, if there was a lot more, gold would, of course, be devalued. And so by taking the easy way to get from something of no value to something of great value, you would take something of great value and make it something of no value. And easy, breezy steps to building community don't equal good community. When we try to take the shortcuts to get to deep, Christ-focused community, we are going to devalue what that community actually is. And so the Good Samaritan gives us an example of what Christian community should like, look like, of what being a good neighbor should look like. And so Jesus says that after the Levite and the priest pass by, this Samaritan who again, with the background there, the Samaritan people and the Jewish people did not get along. But the Samaritan man passed by as he was journeying, and he came to where this man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus says, proved to be the neighbor who fell among the robbers? And of course, the lawyer said it was this last one, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, yes, that's your example of what a good neighbor looks like. And that's a picture of how we live in Christian community. And so we see several things that this good neighbor did. He had compassion on the man who was beaten and abandoned. He bandaged his wounds. He took him to an inn and he stayed with him for the night and made sure that he took care of him. And then he set him up for the future to not only be cared for for that temporary time that they were together, but to make sure that this man was going to be cared for even after their relationship parted ways. 
And so what does this parable teach us about how we should exist in community and where Christian community comes from? The first thing that we see here is that community begins with compassion. And community begins in our hearts. We have the responsibility to learn to love our neighbors, to be able to see and to recognize their needs, and then to be moved by it. This wasn't a simple obligation when the Samaritan came on this person. He looked at this man who was beaten and stripped and robbed, and something inside of him moved him to action. He was inspired by compassion to go and to care for this person. And so before he ever laid hands on this man, he loved him in his heart. This requires a lot of preparation. This kind of compassion doesn't come naturally to most of us. And so we need to be spending time in prayer, asking God to teach us to love our neighbors as Christ loves us. We need to spend time in Scripture and read about the God who cares for widows and orphans, the God who reaches out to those who are in need, the God who loves us before we love Him, and to imitate the work of God and the life of Christ in everything that we do. We need to be constantly feeding the fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that we can practice compassion the way that Jesus teaches us to practice compassion. We need to make sure that we are nurturing the love and the joy and the peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and all these amazing gifts that Jesus gives us through salvation so that when we see someone in need, when we encounter someone in our lives who could use our friendship, who could use our relationship, then we will be moved by what's inside to participate in what needs to be done outwardly. And as we see in this story, compassion doesn't make you the perfect candidate to go and serve someone. There were two better candidates when it comes to what a picture of someone who is in a religious place in their life would be. There were two better candidates that came before the Samaritan. And so maybe he wasn't the most qualified, but because of his compassion, he was the most willing. And that is the most important place to start. The Samaritan was the least likely option. But because of his compassion, he was actually the far best option because he was willing to move, being motivated by compassion. And so community begins in our heart with compassion. And we also see here that community requires getting messy. Community requires a willingness to get messy on behalf of someone else. Think about the first two examples in the Levite and the priest. Jesus adds a very specific detail in their stories that we can't overlook. Because Jesus says not only did they see this man lying in the ditch and pass him by, but Jesus says for both the Levite and the priest, they passed by on the other side. Not only did they not want to help the man who is in need, but they wanted to be sure that there was no way that the dirt and the blood of this man who was beaten to half his life was gone whatever touched them. Not only were they unwilling to get their hands dirty for this man, they didn't even want their robes to be soiled by this man in his situation. But then comes the Samaritan. And here we find a man who is willing to be stained by someone else's mess. There was no way to bandage his wounds and to give him new clothes without getting his hands dirty. 
There was no way to clean off his blood without getting some on the Samaritan's own person. And so he was willing to not only get down in the ditch, but to take on some of that mess so that this man who couldn't help himself could find help. Real community means being willing to be with people at their highest and at their lowest. And when people find themselves at their lowest, that mess is often a little contagious. And there's no way to meet someone where they are without contracting some of that ourselves. To share in that burden and experience some of that burden together. In fact, we're called in Scripture to not only laugh when we laugh with other people, but to also mourn when other people are mourning. To be willing to be with people where they are and to realize that sometimes that might be a sacrificial act that causes us to be a little messy. We have a calling in Christian community to be people of contact. To be people of intimacy. To not simply look at things going on in our world, not simply look at things going on in our neighborhoods, in our communities, or even inside our church, and figure out ways that we can help as much as we can without coming into contact. Maybe we can throw money at it or or pray from a distance and hope that someone comes in. But Jesus calls us to abandon all fear, to abandon all worry about our reputation or what may be going on, and meet people where they were and be willing to get our hands dirty for one another. We also see here that community requires movement. You see, the Samaritan didn't simply treat the wounds of this man and then move on for someone else to take over. He wasn't in so much of a hurry on his journey that he, he knelt down and he did the dirty work and said, okay, listen, I, I'm sorry, but I have to go and I hope someone, I hope this, this carries you for just a little bit until someone else is willing to come, but man, I gotta go. But he wraps his bandages and he takes the man and he puts him on his own animal and he leads his animal in as the Samaritan walks into town. And he begins to take this journey with this man that he had never met before. Another temptation in community is to reach out, to do some good, and then to bail out. To do what we feel like is as much as we can do, to do it maybe the bare minimum or maybe even beyond the bare minimum, but then once we feel like the work is mostly accomplished, to move on. And this especially happens in churches when it comes to, to mission work. When we feel like we're going into an area or reaching out to a people who are in need or that need our services and our help, we go in, we give a little bit, and then we get out. But Jesus calls us to do life side by side to move through life together and to be able to walk with someone when they're walking well or when they need a lot of help. And for us, this is relationship building. This is a commitment to be a part of long-term ministries. This is discipleship of meeting together time after time and talking about the Word of God and strengthening each other in our faith and then going out and serving together. This is a commitment to being with one another and being invested in the lives of the people around us as long as God keeps us together. It requires movement to walk through life with one another to help us get from one stage to the next. And then also we see here that community requires an investment. 
And for the Samaritan, he not only treated the wounds, he not only brought the man in to the place that he was trying to go, but he stayed with him overnight in the inn. He paid for their stay in the inn, and then he also set him up to make sure that he was cared for whenever he left. But not only that, he told the innkeeper, if the, if the cost goes beyond what I've left for you, then just let me know when I come back and I'll make sure to take care of everything because I want to know that my new friend here is going to be taken care of in the future. And while our communities may not last a lifetime, our relationships may not stay intact for years and years and years, we need to be sure that their impact should echo through generations. And so as long as you're here at Redeeming Grace Community Church, as long as you live in Loganville, Georgia, we invest in and serve and focus on caring for our community. And then if God ever calls any of us away to anywhere else, we need to be sure that we have left such an impact in the relationships that we've had that the people who we've had those relationships with would be forever changed. And that that impact that we had on their lives would not echo through their own life, but then as they go out and to do the same for other people, it would echo through the lives of others as well. We need to be intentional about having relationships that are focused on strengthening one another for a lifetime of following Jesus. That when we talk, when we spend time together, when we go out in the community and serve, when we make new relationships, when we meet new people as they come to be a part of our church, that we are intentionally thinking, how am I going to love you and serve you in such a way that your life is going to be different because of our relationship? How am I going to leave you closer to Jesus than when you started? But not only that, how am I going to set you up to continue growing in your faith and to continue growing in your life if our relationship ever finds itself put at a distance? It begins in the heart. It requires getting messy. It requires movement. And it requires an investment. And this is our blueprint as Christians, but especially as Redeeming Grace Community Church, for how we will develop community in our church, in our lives, and in our city. And I really do believe that from our very inception, from the very beginning, part of the reason that community is in our name is because we believe that we are here to be a church for this community. And so we have this amazing foundation laid and it's our responsibility to continue building that culture of genuine Christ-like kingdom-minded community on top of what's already been laid. And we have an awesome opportunity to not only build this kind of community in our church, but to see that echo throughout our entire city. And God has been opening doors as we've been praying as we've seen God move us into this new building and develop new partnerships, we have been asking God intentionally to open some doors so that we can begin taking the steps to building relationships with people, not simply in our church, but the people in our community and living within walking distance of our church so that we can truly be a community church focused on building that community and loving our neighbors. And through our partnerships with organizations like the Path Project and with Shepherd Staff, we're going to have a lot of opportunities coming up, not only this summer, but moving forward to be able to answer that call as God opens those doors. 
And God has given us some amazing ways in that we're going to be talking about. I'll, I'll mention some of those in a minute, but we're going to be relaying some of those to you as we go and as some of these things develop more over the next several weeks. But especially this summer, we're going to have some opportunities to meet some people and to build some relationships through these new partnerships. We're going to have an opportunity to care for families that Shepherd Staff is caring for, families in really difficult situations that are finding themselves sometimes temporarily even without a home. And to be able to be a church family that loves them and cares for them and reaches out to them, but we have to make sure that we're doing that well. Again, it's not about providing a meal and moving on or saying hey or just offering some assistance, but we want to be a church family that comes along and cares for them and helps these families move out of difficult circumstances into better circumstances and most importantly, into a deeper walk with Christ. We have an opportunity to volunteer this summer at the food pantry with Shepherd Staff Ministry. We're going to be having a backyard Bible club in June at Bay Creek Manufactured Home Park where we started building a relationship with some of the children through the PATH project, and now we have this amazing partnership, and we're going to throw a big party that week. We're going to teach the children about the gospel. We're going to teach them about Jesus, but also we're going to have opportunities to interact with their family. We're going to throw a big block party there. We're going to have awesome opportunities to have a very natural introduction to people that are living less than a mile from our church, and to use that as a catalyst for deeper relationships. It's not a one-time event where we throw a party and move on, but we're looking at this as an opportunity to build deep, meaningful relationships. We're going to have opportunities to host life skill classes and Bible studies and things for the children in this community. We're going to have incredible opportunities day after day to go along with the things that are already happening as our church as you go out into your lives, into your homes, into your jobs, into the places that you go and meet new people and invite them to come and be a part of the church as you go to community groups and deepen your relationships with people in the church and invite people to come into the homes of our church members and learn more about God, but also to build deeper relationships relationships. God has given us more than enough opportunities to build this kind of community in our church. And so now it's our responsibility to make sure that we are good stewards of those opportunities, to build this kind of lasting community, to be genuine good neighbors, not allowing community and kingdom to be buzzwords in our church, but to be something that we put in practice on a daily basis, every opportunity that we get. That starts in the relationships that we build with one another that are here today, but it doesn't end here. And as those relationships deepen and grow, we go out and we serve together to love and to connect with and to build relationships with those in our community who are not only in physical need, not only in financial need, but are in spiritual need, needing to hear the gospel, to receive the gospel, to find a church home that will love them and care for them and disciple them, and then send them out to go and to do the same. So the law of the kingdom is that we love the Lord our God with our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength and that we love our neighbors as ourselves. And so it's our responsibility to do this and to find life.